The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Amen. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome, everybody here in the name of Jesus Christ. Welcome, everybody online. Uh, We are missing you, and we love you, and we're grateful that you're tuning in. I want to remind you once again that next week is Easter Sunday. April 4th, and we are adding a service, as I said last week. We're going to have our regular 1030 slot, and we'll have an early service at 9. We're going to try and accommodate for all the COVID spacing we've been doing, as well as the uptick in numbers that we always happily get around Easter. So if you're a visitor, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to connect with you, and we'd love for you to fill out a visitor card so we can know how to get in touch with you. But also, this QR code right here, if you even want to pull out your iPhone and uh, just point your camera at it, that will help you find the link that will let you RSVP to let us know which service you're coming to next week, 9 a.m. or 10.30. We're really, really excited to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord with you this morning. So good to have new faces trickling in all the time. Uh, My family's here this morning, so Pardon the uh, saliva and Belvita cracker on my blazer. Uh, it's kind of a new experience for me to get to, to preach with them in the room. So, We're in the Gospel of Mark this morning following Jesus. And we've been kind of jumping around the middle of the Gospel, the beginning, the end. But from here on out, starting this morning, we're kind of jumping back to the beginning. And we'll be trotting sequentially through the rest of the gospel. So we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 12. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crush him for he had cured many so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, you are the son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We praise you this morning as the Son of God. We lift up your name. And we give thanks, Lord, for healing our diseases. We give thanks for forgiving our sins, for restoring us to new life. And Jesus, I thank you for your life that is present within this body. 
Help us to discern that life and to see how we can repent and believe in the good news of your kingdom. Jesus, I ask for the gift of preaching this morning and we ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination of this text. It's in your name we pray, amen. Imagine a young college football quarterback who becomes a breakout star overnight. So our guy grew up in Ohio, and he goes to school in Vanderbilt, and he's the second string QB there until, lo and behold, the starter gets injured. And he gets a chance to start a game, and sure enough, he throws 11 touchdown passes in a single game. He ties the record for the single game college football touchdown passes. Next week, he gets up, he starts again, he does it again. 11 touchdown passes in a single game. Third week, he does it a third time. Suddenly, people start reacting to this guy, right? And there's three groups in particular that have a really specific response to this young upstart QB, right? The first group of people is the Vanderbilt fans. They love this guy, Right? He, he's incredible. They, they don't know him from Adam. They've never heard of him before. He was the second string QB. They don't know him, but now they love him. They're selling out every game. Okay, the second group responding to him is the Alabama Crimson Tide, their football team. Right? They're in the same conference as Vanderbilt, and usually they win that conference, but now this guy, he's about to roll over their chances, right? This guy, he's impeding upon the season they thought they were going to have. They don't know this guy, but they know they don't like him. And in fact, they'd love for somebody to take him out before he ruins their season. And then there's a third group. And the third group responding to this young upstart QB is Ohio State. They were slated to win it this year. They were going to go all the way. They were the odds-on favorites. And in fact, they, oddly enough, know this guy. Remember, he's from Ohio. He grew up there. They saw him play in high school. But now he's at Vanderbilt, and now he is seriously challenging their ability to win the NCAA football championship. This morning in Mark's gospel, in the early chapters of Mark, Jesus is having a breakout season. Jesus hits the ground running in Mark. It's a really fast-paced gospel. And from day one, from the get-go, Jesus is running around and he's casting out demons and he's healing diseases and he's forgiving sins and he's making a big fuss and people start to notice. And in particular, there are three groups that I want to look at this morning that have a very specific response to Jesus and all that he's doing in Mark's gospel. So let's start this morning by jumping back into Mark 3, our text, but about halfway through in verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, it says, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crush him, for he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. So one thing we know about Jesus is that he could sell some tickets 
right? Jesus is gathering crowds around him wherever he goes because he's doing these marvelous deeds. And so that's the first group responding to Jesus, the crowds. And the crowds, you'll notice, love him. The crowds are mysteriously, magnetically drawn to Jesus. There are so many people that they're gonna crush him on the seashore and Jesus has to request a boat so he can get out into the lake. Right? The crowds love Jesus, they're attracted to him. They, they wanna know what's going on. But here's the thing about the crowds. They don't know Jesus. This guy just popped up out of nowhere. Some podunk town called Nazareth. Jesus just came out of nowhere. They don't know who he is. There's kind of this mystery surrounding him. They don't understand Jesus, but they know they want to follow him. Remember back in Mark chapter one, verse 27, it says, they were all amazed. And they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? At once, Jesus' fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. What is this? The crowds don't know or understand Jesus, but they know they really want to get in on what he's doing. They really want to follow him. But there's a second group, another group responding to Jesus in the early chapters of Mark. There's the crowds, and then there's what I'm calling the clergy. Okay, so the clergy includes the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the teachers and experts in the law. And we see the Pharisees in particular, their response at the start of our story, beginning in verse 1. So again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the Pharisees, you've probably heard tons of stories about the Pharisees. They're an interesting group because they've been around for about 200 years when Jesus comes along. And they're kind of this religious political pressure group. And what's interesting about them is they didn't have any actual authority of their own. They weren't actually vested with any real power to make or write or enforce laws. So the power, the authority that the Pharisees had was they were kind of opinion makers, right? The, the Jewish people at large respected them as, you know, experts in Israel's ancestral traditions. So they don't really have any deep power. And what happens here, though, is that they, they purport to have these very strict adherences to Sabbath laws, right? To laws around fasting, laws around the Sabbath, laws around purity. They set up these kind of laws, and Jesus is transgressing them, right? Jesus is like, hey, is it right to do good or harm on the Sabbath? As he brings this man forward with the withered hand. He says, is it right to save life or to kill? Pharisees are silent. And it says that they went out immediately, in verse 6 here, 
and conspired with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. So the Pharisees, this is precisely why they have to conspire with the Herodians, because they don't have any real power of their own, right? They can't really enforce anything. And so they conspire with the Herodians who are actually kind of their natural-born enemies. The Pharisees were very skeptical of King Herod, who was considered by them to be kind of a traitor of Judaism, a dangerous guy, and the Herodians were Herod's supporters. But they're so desperate to take on Jesus that they will ally themselves with their natural enemies. All right, and notice here, the word that Jesus uses for kill, right? In verse four, Jesus says, should we, should we do good or harm on the Sabbath? Should we save life or kill? That word kill is closely tied in the Greek to the word that Mark uses for the Pharisees, that the Pharisees now want to go out and destroy Jesus. Jesus says, what should we do on the Sabbath? Save life or destroy it? Pharisees say, we're going to destroy Jesus. So unlike the crowds who don't know Jesus, but are really drawn to following him. The Pharisees don't know Jesus, but they don't want anything to do with him. They're repulsed by him, and in fact, they want to destroy him. They'd like to get rid of him because he's challenging their little kingdom of power. And they'll really stop at nothing, right? They will conspire with the Herodians, and they will even attribute to Jesus the demonic, we see this later on in Mark chapter 3, right? There's this kind of mystery surrounding Jesus' identity. He's doing these supernatural things. And in Mark 3 verse 22, it says that the scribes, who I'm also including in this group, the clergy, the scribes came down from Jerusalem, said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Beelzebul is just another name for Satan, another name for the devil, essentially. And the scribes here are attributing to Jesus the demonic, attributing to him Satan. They're saying he's possessed by Satan. And Jesus, in that story, quickly kind of untangles their terrible logic. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Right? If Satan is casting out Satan, then Satan's kingdom is done, clearly. But they will stop at nothing. The clergy are so opposed to Jesus that they will even attribute the demonic to him. The crowds don't know Jesus, but their response is to follow. And then there's a third group. There's a third group who knows exactly who Jesus is. And they don't want to touch him with a 10-foot pole. And that group is the demons. Notice the response of the unclean spirits of the demons in the opening chapters of Mark. So in our passage in verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, you are the son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. In Mark 5, we're going to get that great story of the guy who's living among the tombs and he's breaking his chains and he's possessed by so many spirits that they call themselves legion. 
And in that, Mark chapter five, verse seven, it says, he shouts at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And then once more, returning to a story that Ben read back in chapter one of Mark, verse 23. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. The crowds don't know Jesus, but they want to follow The clergy don't know Jesus, but they want to destroy him. The demons, they know exactly who Jesus is. And they're scared. Right? The demons are using a title for Jesus that no other human so far has used for Jesus. Son of God. In the very first verse of Mark, The narrator, Mark, tells us that Jesus is the Son of God, but in these opening chapters and through most of the gospel, no human ever calls Jesus Son of God. The only people who know Jesus is the Son of God is the demons. And these demons are shaken in their boots because they believe, as you can see, that Jesus has come to get them, to confront them, to destroy them. And you know what? They're right. The demons are right about who Jesus is. They're right about what he's doing. That the coming of Jesus has initiated this decisive conflict between the powers of God and the powers of darkness. Right? That the coming of Jesus, the coming of God's kingdom, has initiated this decisive conflict between the kingdom of God and the present evil age. The demons are scared of Jesus because they know he's come to confront them. And suddenly, once you see that, you see everything in the Gospel of Mark differently. Once you see this conflict at the heart of the Gospel, you start to understand all the other turmoil happening in the Gospel. It's like being a part of an organization or maybe a school or a team. Have you ever been a part of an organization that had a lot of conflict going on? And and there's a lot of turnover and change and turmoil and and you're just kind of struggling to understand it. And then maybe you get in a room and you're with two people and you see them kind of going at it. And you start to understand, wait a minute, this is kind of the center of the conflict. Right? These two people are having a beef, and it's kind of spreading out into all these other beefs. Right, This whole turmoil can probably be kind of traced back to this confrontation right here. That's what's happening in the Gospels. Right, There is a major confrontation happening in Mark because Jesus has shown up to confront the demons. Jesus has initiated the reign of God in the world that is overcoming all the powers of darkness at work in the world. And suddenly you see that from the very beginning of Mark. This is the confrontation. 
right? Right after Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit, in verse 12, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. And then we go through these first few chapters and Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing diseases. He's forgiving sins. He's confronting the works of darkness. And in fact, the letter of 1 John, which is a very different text in the New Testament than Mark, but speaks into our reading of it. 1 John says simply, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, the Son of God, that title, to destroy the works of the devil. The demons know Jesus is the Son of God. And they're scared because they know he's come to challenge their kingdom. Jesus has come to undo the works of the devil, of the Satan, right? That Old Testament Hebrew word, the Satan, it means the accuser. We've talked about this before. So Satan is this force of accusation, this force of negation, trying to undo God's good creation. And Jesus has come to undo the works of Satan. He's come to negate the negator, right? He's come to destroy the power of destruction and death. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil, to to undo hypocrisy, injustice, violence, oppression, sin, disease, and death. Because as Ben said, there is a new sheriff in town. And when the reign of God shows up, the demons shudder. Crowds don't know Jesus. But they know they want to follow him. Their response is to be drawn to Jesus. The clergy, they don't know Jesus. But they know they don't want a thing to do with him. They know they actually want to destroy him because Jesus is challenging their little kingdom. But the demons, the demons know Jesus and they are shaking in their boots. Because Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. These are the responses that we get to Jesus in the early chapters of Mark. These are the responses we get. And so church, it raises for us the question this morning. How will we respond to Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus? Jesus is a powerful word that demands a response. Right? And to disregard him or to delay the response is itself a kind of response. Right? Jesus has come to undo the works of darkness, to undo the forces of evil. And he demands a response from us. So the question is, will we repulse him? Will we try to rid ourselves of him? Or will we run to him? How will we respond to Jesus? Will we choose to follow him even when we don't fully understand him like the crowds? 
Will we choose to follow him anyway? To, to join in on his work of life-saving kingdom work. To join in on his resistance, his undoing of hypocrisy, injustice, violence, oppression, sin, disease, and death. Will we join in to that work? Will we repent and believe in the good news? Will we be baptized into the good news of that kingdom to join Jesus in his life-saving salvation? How will you respond to Jesus? Maybe a better way to ask it, how are you responding to Jesus right now? Every breath, every moment, every word, every deed is a response to the good news of Jesus who has shown up to undo and destroy the works of darkness. May we begin that response by standing and praising Jesus, the Son of God.